The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to Squawk Box. Here are your headlines today. Over 170 Boeing 737 MAX 9 aircraft grounded after a side panel on the Alaska Airlines flight blows off mid-flight. There's a lot of information we still have to collect and a lot we still have to document. Again, this is we've only been on, on scene for 24 hours. We have a lot of work to do. This isn't going to be a one or two days and we're done. Wall Street posts its first down week in 10, while Treasury yields push higher as December's non-farm payrolls report comes in stronger than expected. Crude prices fall after three weekly gains in four, as Saudi Arabia cuts crude prices to their lowest level in 27 months. And the U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken holds talks with officials in the UAE and Saudi Arabia today before heading to Israel as he seeks to ease tension in the region. This is a moment of profound tension in the region. Uh, this is a conflict that could easily metastasize, causing even more insecurity and even more suffering. big story unfolding this morning as the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration has ordered a temporary grounding of Boeing 737 MAX 9 jets after a section on the side of an Alaska Airlines plane blew out mid-flight. The order is expected to affect 171 planes. Arabile has more details for us. Arabile, this is a company that started to step away from some of the reputational damage and regulatory issues from two plane crashes, one in 2018 and one in 2019. Now it has a major problem after events unfolding in recent days. Yeah, a number of long-standing sagas and situations and issues that have really faced Boeing and have really uh, impacted the airline quite significantly. You're quite right, that flight then, of course, 2018, 2019, all of those flights really impacting things. But here are some of the numbers of this latest situation right it was the 737 max 9 jet that was affected it was a flight uh, heading off then uh, from oregon right down to california then 171 planes then were grounded with almost immediate effect a lot of these airlines are, are actually used then in the united states primarily by alaska airlines and united airlines then having grounded that many you saw the uh, FAA also release a few statements really with regards to this thing that they needed to inspect a lot of these planes and those are the airlines that have pretty much grounded uh, that airline. Now significantly this was the statement really released then uh, by FAA really talking about it is a temporary grounding and even as of yesterday they had maintained that these uh, flights would still be grounded because a further inspection still needed to be made uh, across the board will take around four to eight hours per aircraft. The EAD, which of course is the Emergency Airworthiness Directive, will affect approximately 171 planes, as we said, worldwide. Significantly, the EU adopted a similar mandate then uh, as the FAA and the EUD, uh, EAD, should I say, but no European uh, uh, airline actually uses the MAX 737, MAX 9, that is, at present. So, too, 
the UK doing pretty much the same. Uh, it was only eight weeks or so old, right? At least eight weeks or so old was this plane. So a few concerns and a few question marks will certainly then be asked. With regards to further statements, Boeing also released a statement then following all of this saying that safety is still their top priority and they deeply regret the impact of this event. This was a fuselage door that of course uh, left uh, or rather popped out of the airplane. A fuselage is pretty much the main body of the aircraft which came out with a window, 174 passengers um, and six crew members were unhurt and even landed safely then. No one sat in the two seats next to this fuselage, this window and the side panel um, that actually ended up leaving the aircraft or got blown out ultimately. Alaska Flight 1282 then had that emergency landing, however. Another statement then, of course, uh, coming out as well from Alaska Airlines this, uh, this time saying it made the decision to temporarily ground the 7379 MAX fleet pending inspection. We're working with the FAA to ensure that our inspections meet the detailed requirements and comply. So still a lot more questions than answers, I suppose, at this stage. Just a reminder that this previously happened even in 1990, and it was because of actually a screw that was misused in that window uh, configuration. So is it a similar aspect then to have happened then? But still a few more questions that still need to be asked. Arabile, thank you very much for running us through the latest. Speaking to reporters this morning, Jennifer Homendy, chair of the U.S. National Transportation Safety Board, said the investigation will take time. Uh, there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. Structures wants to continue looking uh, at the air, airframe, at the door uh, uh, plug structure, and they're going to want to take off certain components and send it back to the lab. They're also going to want to look at the door plug that's on the opposite side of the aisle uh, that is intact and look at how that functions uh, in comparison to what they're seeing on the left side of the airplane. Uh, our um, survival factors team uh, will be doing interviews of the rest of the flight, atten of the flight attendants in the aft of the airplane. Um, other view interviews will take place. We'll look for maintenance records, repair logs. There's a lot of information we still have to collect and a lot we still have to document. Again, this is, we've only been on, on scene for 24 hours, one day. Uh, we have a lot of work to do. This isn't going to be a one or two days and we're done. This could be, you know, weeks that we're here. Let's get to Alexander Iving, who is the Equity Research Analyst and Director of European Transport at Bernstein. Alexander, thank you very much for joining us today. Can I ask you about the immediate impact first up on Boeing from this news flow? We know the stock was in a sense since October, joining some of the other industrial companies in a rally. Now this news flow has crossed. Where does it leave Boeing? Sure. Thanks very much for having me. The immediate thing to think about from the airline industry perspective is capacity constraint. We're still an industry that's still recovering towards 2019 levels of flying, trying to grow above that. Here's still a developing story, but we've, all, on the one hand, already had engine problems on some of the A321 aircraft. Now, if you've got a potential developing story with the other major narrowbody aircraft in the sky, you could find yourself in an industry that is more capacity constrained again. 
there have been some issues concerning what comes next on supply and I think many of the market have been looking at the, the prospects for the MAX 10 coming to, to market the larger capacity aircraft here, hoping that maybe some of those regulatory issues had been clearing up in the backdrop, allowing a smooth flight for the, the next generation of planes. What happens now given these regulatory issues? Right. So looking at the very near term in Europe, it's really all about the AP2 Neo and the engine problems there, with GTFs. Think about the MAX, the big airline that's ordered the MAX 10. Europe has been Ryanair. They don't spend to get any of those planes until kind of 2026, 2027. And that will then become a larger and larger part of their fleet and a big part of their growth as you go out through the late part of the 2020s and into the 2030s. You've got to think about in Europe, in European narrowbody, there's only two airlines that are putting material growth into that industry, and that's Ryanair and Wiz. So the MAX is very important to the European industry growth. Alexander, I mean, look, thankfully, no one died and it wasn't at full cruising height. So the impact was incredibly limited and they managed to manoeuvre a safe landing on this plane. That said, how often does this kind of thing happen with newish designs, newish planes as well? Is it something that actually is just part of aviation? And obviously it looks terrifying. It probably was incredibly terrifying and is unnerving for anyone who will be getting onto one of these planes, I guess, when they get back into service. But does this just happen? Is it part of aviation? No, absolutely not. Aviation, everything is double checked, triple checked. As a matter of course, it's inherently a very risk averse industry because of the consequences if something goes wrong mid-flight. So this is certainly rare. Um, we've seen in the US over the last year other issues more around airports, in space of the aerodromes, a couple of runway incursions, those sorts of things. Again, nobody was hurt there because of the additional safeguards and guardrails that you have in the industry. Um, but something like this in mid-flight is 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 quite unusual. Uh, Alexander, in terms of the diagnosis and then the rectification of the problem going forward, how quick a process can this be to get these planes back in the air? Obviously, we've talked about the length of time it takes to uh, check each individual airplane. But I mean, if there is something that they find fairly swiftly, can this move the whole process on in a timely fashion? Or actually, is this going to be something that's going to be a long term hangover? Hard to say at this point. So this is only a, a couple of days old. As as per normal in aviation, they'll make sure things are completely safe for putting these planes back in the air. As I understand it so far, it's only one variant of the MAX where they, that they're currently looking at in terms of the airlines that have actually got those planes as of putting those planes on the ground. So forget the MAX 8, the MAX 8200, which is more common in Europe. Forget the MAX 10, it's about the variants of the MAX 9 so far. Um, and then look at that specific plane. And only only when the authorities and the airlines are extremely confident that this is not going to endanger passengers, this is going to be safe, will these planes be flying. Alexander, where do you think this leaves the Chinese? Because already sources are saying that uh, Chinese officials have been seeking updates. What we saw back in November, the stock Boeing actually bounced on hopes that perhaps there would be some thawing with the Chinese around regulation. Do you think this is a setback and one of the ramifications more broadly in terms of aeroplane orders from the Chinese? And certainly, certainly the Chinese airlines are going to need planes. I've um, got to bear in mind, of course, in China, you've also had the recent thing to the air of the Comac C919, which is the Chinese-developed narrow-body plane that exists with similar mission capabilities to an A320 or to a Boeing 737. Um, but aviation remains a growth industry. We'll continue to see the Chinese aviation industry expand. 
needs planes to do so. And I would expect really all the major OEMs to end up being a part of that industry as they currently are. Final question for me is just a broader question. If we can move on from these events, which again, thank God that the no one was was hurt in this uh, incredible event as well. I'm just looking at the valuations of uh, the airlines, even the ones you like, the likes of Ryanair, which you have an outperform rating on as well. Very, very low valuations compared with broader S&P, compared with broader indices as well. Just, just remind our viewers why this sector fails to rally as aggressively as other stocks when we, we hope we've got some form of recovery. I mean, for instance, ICAG, the owner of British Airways, trades on four and a half times forward. Ryanair, a stock that you haven't outperformed on, trades at nine times forward. Very lowly valuations, Alexander. Correct. And airlines have always traded quite cheap, just given the high beta inherent riskiness of the, of the business model. You've got a lot of operating leverage. You've got essentially a commoditized product. You've got commodity price exposure. The list goes on. And at the moment, there's still concern over the macro environment. We had interest rate hikes through the course of last year. Are consumers going to get squeezed? If they, if they are squeezed, are they going to continue traveling? And you have a very quick ratchet effect if demand drops off, if fares drop off. Don't really get any relief on the cost side until they have capacity. So there's definitely a macro overhang still on the sector. I think that continues to keep multiples of all covered airlines below the levels they were pre-pandemic. Alexander Irving, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We appreciate your expertise on this. Equity Research Analyst and Director, European Transport at Bernstein. For more on the Alaska Airlines accident and the FAA's response, you can go to cnbc.com. To be honest, just very briefly, there is one very obvious thing that we're all going to do now is make sure that we've got our seatbelts on. Absolutely. I, I mean, I I don't, I've got to be honest, I, I'm, I'm, I'm too lax about it. I'm, most of the time really? I do, but, it, yeah, but it, in the car, of course, I, I the whole 100% time. That's but when I'm in the airport, if I get up or I've got the airplane, and I'm stretching around and kind of sometimes it's not something that I'm obsessive about. Really? Oh, I am. I'm strapped in You're almost 100% of the time. So on the long haul flights, even, you know, you yeah, go yeah. Oh, yeah, well, you have to have it over your blanket away. and all that so the, the attendant can see you. And Short all that. haul flights, absolutely, as well. I mean, we always think the greatest yeah. fear is turbulence, but clearly there can be other issues that yeah. crop up as well. Yeah. Wow. Well, there you go. I think we'll, it, those of me who are errant in our ways will have, will have certainly learned our way lesson after this extraordinary And so event. much for the window seat as well, can I say. And so much for everyone desperate to get near the emergency exits yeah, yeah, so they can right. have the extra legroom. Mm. Uh, Arabile, a, a great seasoned traveller that you are. <laughs> Not as seasoned as you, Steve, but coming up on the show, a hot jobs report sends a positive signal on the health of the US labour market. We'll break down the figures, that's coming up next. Plus, US Secretary of State Antony Blinken is due in Israel today as he continues his Middle East trip. We'll have the latest from the region, that's coming up throughout the show, and stay tuned in for our conversation with Goldman Sachs' head of macro research in Europe. That's Peter Oppenheimer. That interview is coming up at 9.30 CET. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Welcome back. The U.S. non-farm payrolls came in higher than expected in December, with employers adding 216,000 new jobs. That is well above the expected figure, 
circa 170,000, and November's a downwardly revised print of 173,000. The unemployment rate held steady at 3.7%, whilst average wages rose more than expected, up 0.4% on the month. The jobs number could challenge market expectations that the Fed's rate cut trajectory will be more aggressive than officials are currently indicating, with the odds of a first cut by March now being pared back to just over 50%. Chief economists from Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan and Citi spoke to CNBC about how December's payroll report influences their bets for a potential first Fed cut in March. The main driver of cuts from the Fed in our forecast is weak inflation. The inflation numbers have been very soft, and if that doesn't unwind, then I think we'll be at a point before too long, maybe by the March meeting, where they say inflation is now sufficiently close to 2% that we should start to reduce rates. Given the wage number we saw today, they probably want to be a little more comfortable that uh, labor costs are moderating in a more significant way before I think they're comfortable to, to declare victory, which I think a cut is essentially declaring victory given their well-known reversal aversion. I think they want to be pretty confident that when they start, they're going to keep going. If you entered the week thinking the Fed was going to cut in March, I think you can leave the week uh, with that same view. My personal perspective is uh, wait and see. I kind of expect them later, later in the year, maybe later in the second quarter, but uh, uh, nothing, nothing to really move the dial today or during the, the past week. Here's the reaction to the U.S. non-farm payrolls, muted gains on the major boards. The Dow eking out 25 points or less than a tenth of a percent. Uh, slight gain for the S&P, almost two tenths to the upside and limited gains too for the Nasdaq. But in focus, as you can see, over the course of the trading week, investors taking stock given this was the launch for 2024. And there can be some historical markings for just how stocks perform for the first five days of the trading year. So what we've seen now for what was a holiday shortened trading week, on the back foot for the Dow to the tune of six tenths of a percent, down one and a half percent for the S&P 500 and the wash up for the Nasdaq uh, thanks to the, the trading week down three and a quarter percent. So in reverse is what we saw on those major boards. And let's take a look at Treasuries. The markets are digesting a lot this week as well. CPI out later this week. The market is looking very closely at these numbers expected to rise 0.2 of a percent on core CPI pulling annual inflation back to about 3.8%. And uh, a ton of Fed speakers as well closely watched this week, as well as earnings season. The market will have some numbers to digest as we have JP Morgan, Citigroup starting that reporting a string of companies on Friday. So uh, expectations at this stage are for S&P 500 profits to rise 3% on year. Uh, some see an even higher level than that. But at this point, you can see the two-year 4.39%. And the longer end, we're back above that 4% handle. So the read-in from corporates, but also from the CPI, could be quite key to the Treasury markets this week. Let's take a look at dollar with that firmer yield that we're watching. Sterling, euro on the back foot versus greenback, as you can see. Slim ranges, but cable perched just above 127 this morning. 109.39 on euro dollar. Dollar slipping versus the Japanese yen. It had marched beyond the 145 handle in that uh, Friday trade, but pulling back a little bit this morning, down a quarter of a percent. Dollar firmer versus the Chinese currency.
WTI and Brent, a lot of cross currents here. As we wrapped up the trading week last week, we were focused on the events in the Red Sea and the impact on shipping costs from all the disruption from Houthi rebels, intervention being discussed by some of the Western allies. But then over the weekend, the news flowed that the Saudis have cut prices to all regions, including key Asian customers, thanks to weaker demand. And as a result, we're dropped on the price 72.74. I mean, the dialogue has been that it's demand that's been in the driver's seat anyway. 145 uh, is 1.45% uh, down and 1.3 off the Brent price, 77.72. The Asian markets, China closed today for a holiday. We've got a retreat though right across the region, in particular for Hong Kong stocks, down 339 points or just over 2% in the red. Losses for Shanghai down about nine tenths and more modest declines uh, ratcheted up on the Australian and South Korea markets. And uh, Steve, at this point, I've got to say another busy trading week, isn't it? We've got geopolitics, we've got company-specific story around Boeing and big industrial, and uh, the market's closely watching earnings season. Yes, all of the above. Um, if I can take a look backwards before we look at some of these kind of, i.e. the payroll numbers. Um, there was a feature of, of, of the market move on Friday, which we haven't talked about really, and, uh, and, and that is how well behaved the market was almost. It kind of like, great. This was really quite robust data. OK, the revisions were downward for the previous month, so I appreciate that's a mitigating factor. But, but as we've already heard from those analysts at uh, City, JP and Goldman's as well, this was a solid old piece of number. And the, and the thing that could have scared the horses was the fact that the average hourly earnings were so robust, you know, again, with a strong, strongest forehand as well. So on another day, you and I now would be talking about how the market took this really badly because this standoff remains between the 140, 150 basis points that the market's looking at uh, compared with the 75 that the Fed has indicated. And again, it hasn't promised. And I pulled up uh, our dear friend uh, Carl Weinberg on this later last week because I think it's important to point. The Fed is not saying this will happen. It's saying that is an indication. But the market reaction was beautifully well behaved. Look at those moves uh, on the US markets. Really barely moving on the back of what on another day could have been a horrible piece of data. So a couple of reasons. Was that because the markets are more relaxed than we think about stronger data scenarios or actually was it the fact that it's been a real drubbing for certain parts of the market technology as you say down four percent for the week already and actually a lot of the the bears um have, have taken off some of their positions maybe as a lot of the bulls aren't prepared to uh, trim their longs uh, after such a drubbing uh, in the previous week well we were facing a loss of momentum on market so yeah. with that in mind having some news that came through as good news that had potential to be bad news but I think if you look at uh, what we've had, a market that's had to readjust expectations that have been very solid around rate cuts, 150 basis points of rate cuts last week was what the market had tallied up. We're about 136 basis points now, so about 14 basis points being shaved off by the market thanks to this data point. But we'll have more this week, and I think that's what's key. It's never really ever been about one data point. This time we've been jumpier around news flow because uh, we've got this dynamic market closely watching every little piece for what the Fed will do. But I think this week, uh, the core CPI is going to be absolutely key because we still haven't managed to park away some of those expectations around from the more hawkish members that we could reignite inflation at some point if we go too early with rate cuts or even with the rate cuts that are expected over the course of this year, we could see inflation go back to the upside. Uh, and what is very interesting, and again, I mentioned Carl Weinberg and I'm looking at some of his colleagues um, copy is actually talking about how restrictive we actually are and, and and if the fed were to hold steady at the current fed funds rate you know 5.375 uh, at the midpoint as well 
if that inflation that you talked about and PCE deflators continue to decline, then policy, ergo, by nature of holding steady, becomes more restrictive in terms of the real rate as well. So very, very interesting to see how the Fed will respond to inflation moves as well, regardless of all the other factors going into the economy. Yeah, just looking at what moved last week and obviously Friday's session, we had financials to the upside and is that uh, pivot ahead of the reports coming up this week from the banks, a bit of repositioning ahead of bank reporting, consumer staples are the laggard. So again, a nod to some of that interest rate sensitivity out there already in the marketplace. But I think if you look over the course of the trading week, it was very much technology that was the area that you saw that retreat. And that's the, the reflection of momentum being lost from the market. Um, congressional leaders, meanwhile, from both US parties, have announced an agreement on an overall government spending budget of $1.6 trillion in 2024. So this is the overall impression rather than the individual appropriations. We've got to get that point in. Uh, as the country looks to avoid a partial government shutdown on January 19th. Uh, as I mentioned, the, the, the appropriation committees still need to work out the details of the cutbacks, but Republican Speaker Mike Johnson held an agreement to cut an additional $10 billion from the internal revenue service and claw back more than $6 billion of COVID relief funds um, as a positive move. But when you think about it, what are those two added together? $16 billion uh, out of a budget of, what did I just say, $1.6 trillion? It's dropping the ocean, eh? Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.